We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with chess players, personalities, authors, and adult improvers about their lives, their careers, and about chess improvement. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters. For more information, go to PerpetualChessPod.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We're going to bring our guest in momentarily, but first for the second week in a row, just in case any of you didn't catch last week, I want to mention our social media outreach. I don't do this often, but just in case uh, anyone is not keeping up with, uh, with us there, you can follow me on Twitter at Official one I have a long-term goal of passing Greg Shahadi in Twitter followers, so please follow me, unfollow Greg, make bot accounts, whatever you have to do. Um, Facebook group, you can come. Sometimes guests of the show chime in. But then most importantly, I wanted to spread the word about the Instagram account because that's new. It's not me running it, but we have someone making cool audio clips, little outtakes um, or highlights rather from the episode. So um, please follow at Perpetual Chess on Instagram and share it if you see something you like. Uh, with that out of the way, let's get our guest in here. He is a return guest, a beloved chess YouTube presenter, the co-founder of Chessable.com. He is a course author, as we will discuss, for Chessable.com, and he is rejoining us about two and a half years after his first appearance on Perpetual Chess. I am John Bartholomew. How are you? 
Thank you, Ben. I'm doing great and great to be back on the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Yeah, it's good to have you back. It was crazy to listen to our interview, John. I, I don't dig into the archives that often, but when I but I wanted to to hear what it was, what we talked about. Um, so for any listeners who haven't been with the show for the whole ride and haven't caught up on the archive, I'll link to it in the show description. You should definitely check it out. I mean, I think most people listening know who John is and are familiar uh, with his content, but you might not know his whole backstory. And we dug into that. Um, but the fun thing for me, John, was hearing uh, you talk about Chessable in sort of its nascent stages. I mean, so this, right. was, this was uh, June of 2017. I barely knew about Chessable. You were kind of, I mean, of course, I knew about it from your YouTube videos. I, 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 but you explained the technology. You guys had just gotten some some venture capital funding. And two and a half years later, it's amazing what what some hardworking people can accomplish. Yeah, I guess at the time that we recorded that podcast, we were about a year and a half into things and we we're starting to pick up some steam, but very still in the early stages, which actually, if you were to talk to our co-founder, uh, my co-founder, our CEO, David Cramley, he would tell you we're still in the early stages of Chessable. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, it's it's been fun to see your growth, but I mean... You, you guys have, it seems like you're picking up speed, if anything. So, and of course, we'll get into that. We, of course, want to talk about your course. But the first thing I thought that we should talk about, John, is we got to get the trip report. You had this YouTube video that went chest viral of uh, Magnus <laughs> doing 100 End Games You Must Know. So I want to dig into that. But first, to just tell us generally what it was like to go to the famed chess tournament Tata Steel in Wijkenzie, uh, Holland, or the Netherlands. Yeah, I mean, needless to say, it was a fantastic opportunity that really got organized last minute. And this was, again, thanks to our CEO. But he was able to talk to Magnus and his team. And because Magnus Carlson's company, Play Magnus, owns Chessable, we're now under the Chessable umbrella as of last August, it was um, something he was willing to do. Just take a little bit of his time on the rest day at Wykanze in order to record this. So I didn't know I was going till about a week prior, so had to make arrangements real quick, move some stuff around. But hey, when the world champion says he's willing to record something with you, you immediately capitalize on that opportunity. So <laughs> yeah. I was soon on a plane to Amsterdam, and it was a relatively quick trip. I was there from a Tuesday afternoon through Friday, and then I was back to the States. But it was fantastic being there and being in the city of Waikanze, which is population, I think, roughly 2,500 but obviously, the Waikanze tournament, now known as Tata Steel, has such a storied history. And it was pretty awesome just being there, walking around the little city. I mean, actually, I think the second day I was there, I was just walking to the tournament site. And it was about maybe 1.45, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And I was still relatively jet-lagged, just getting a feel for the city and whatnot. And I was walking with Geert, who's our publishing manager at Chessable. And... There's this little path leading to the tournament from the hotel that we were staying at. And I see Fabiano walking in the opposite direction towards us. And, you know, we, we paused and we said hello. And I was like, oh, uh, good luck in your game today. Hope, hope you do well. And he's like, oh, I, I just finished my game, actually. Hmm. <laughs> so I didn't know what time the game started, but he had just made a quick draw, I think, with Vitugov and uh, was just walking back. But. You just run into people like that in a small city. I saw Anand like on the same little walk, um, actually coming back from the tournament. So yeah, it was funny just being there in, in this very close knit chess community. Like all the cafes had chess boards in the windows, and apparently people from all over the Netherlands come and watch this tournament, even if they're just only casually interested in chess. 
Yeah, small country with a rich chess history, um, and the tournament itself, of course, has a rich history. So yeah, it's definitely high on high on my list of places I'd like to get to someday. And yeah, mm-hmm. it's funny that the small world aspect we've talked about that, or I have with with various guests, especially vis a vis the St. Louis Chess Club. Um, you know, because it's it, it casts such a, a long shadow in the chess world. It has such a large imprint. But then you get there from what people have said, I've actually never been. And it's just this small place. And it's it's cool to hear that that White Ganze is the same way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They got a little bar coffee shop there right in the tournament site where a lot of people congregate. And the open tournaments, there's various sections for uh, these sub tournaments that they have. But the main open tournament is directly beside the, the top event, as is the challengers group and everything. It's all in one huge tournament hall with this gigantic mural. And very close quarters, actually, um, but very cool to see as well. Yeah. And then, of course, as you mentioned, the purpose of your trip to film this video with Magnus, had you met him before? I had never met him in person before or spoken to him, but I'd seen him at, seen him at events. Uh, I think I walked past him on one uh, little jaunt around a, a tournament site one time when I was in London for the London Chess Classic, but never spoke directly to him or anything. And now he's your boss. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so, so you got to be on the good side. Yeah, and last I checked, um, it's probably even a little higher and uh, will be even higher by the time this comes out, but it was like 270,000 YouTube, YouTube views when I checked a day or two ago. Um, but to me, the most, I mean, okay, I want to dig into the video because it was fun to watch. And of course, there's yeah. a lot chess-wise to unpack from it. But um, the idea that you're presented in a position of th- authority with Magnus to me is the funniest thing. You're you're like <laughs> you're like the Alex Trebek, and he's the contestant. You know how did right. how did that feel? Yeah, it was <laughs> it was a funny situation. You're right because I know all the answers to the problems, and I'm I was mostly just curious to see how he would approach them sight unseen. And I got to say, he did quite well. I was a little surprised that he struggled with one of the problems. Those who haven't watched the video. This is a bit of a spoiler, but he did get one of the problems in this 26 question test wrong. Yeah. And actually, John, if I could just jump in, I think most people will know what we're talking about. But just to give a little more context, um, John, uh, just as we'll be talking about, just has uh, within the last few weeks released a video course for the classic endgame chess book, 100 endgames you must know. And uh, so to help... um, uh, spread the word about the uh, the video course he traveled to White Kinsey to show or to test Magnus with positions from the endgame course. So just to give that background, sorry, John, you can hop back in. No, no, that was that was good color commentary to it because, yeah, it was something I was working on for a few months and has been a big project for all of us at Chessable. Uh, 100 Endgames, you must know, is a fantastic book for anyone interested in endgames, by the way. So uh, obviously I'm biased, but even just the print book, it's by Grandmaster Jesus de la Villa. Uh, it's, it's great. But yeah, so going there and, and having the world champion agree to take this little test was really enlightening. And you're right, I was kind of a, a proctor, Alex Trebek type, <laughs> being able to observe his thought process and try to draw some interesting stuff out of him too, as he was giving his thoughts. And we originally thought we'd only have about 10 minutes with him because it was a rest day, but he's still on a relatively tight schedule. He had some other stuff in mind. He was going to go play some soccer. Uh, but he ended up staying for about 30 minutes and he explained his thoughts a lot more than I thought he would actually. I, I expected him to say some stuff, but pretty much for every position, he was explaining what he was thinking and responding to questions that I was posing him. 
Yeah, it was cool to see. And I like the way that you would ask him because often, of course, I think you said it was, I think it was 26 questions. He only got one wrong. And, but often you would ask him, like, do you know what this is called? So, you know, it's interesting because uh, anyone buying this book at this point and doing the move trainer with Chessable is, um, is approaching it sort of in an academic sense, but Magnus sort of has it in his bones at this point. So it was interesting to hear which ones he knew the names for and which ones he didn't and stuff like that. Yeah. When it came to the concept of key squares, he had a great quote. He said, I don't think in terms of key squares, I think in terms of resigns. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was funny. <laughs> and he had, he had some good ones beyond that as well. Yeah, um, he did. So yeah, it was cool to see and just, just to see his mind as work at work. And of course th- that book I think is a particularly well suited because, um, it's something where the world, even the world champion will get one wrong. But if you, but if you put the work in, even as a club level player, you can learn these end games. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's what we hope with Chessable as our platform. Um, I think our platform is well suited to a course like that, where the solutions are quite concrete. It's not end game practice, let's say it's end game theory. So there are specific positions where most of the time you simply have to know the correct move. Yeah. And yeah. And um, and I do want to hop into a question now. We have a question from a Patreon supporter of the podcast for for listeners who don't know people who support the show, find out advance notice of the guests and can send in questions. And I'm, I'm happy to have some great questions for John. Of course, he's always um, an off requested guest. So um, we've got a few good questions for John. And the first one uh, actually relates to this video. So this is from a friend and former guest of the show, Han Shoot. And Han asks, he says, oh, and Chessable author, I should say. Um, Han says, uh, you recorded an amazing video with Magnus Carlsen going through the 100 end games you must know test. A number of times Magnus chose an alternative move, which is called a soft fail in Chessable. And he showed some frustration having to find for the auth- find uh, the author's move of choice as opposed to his. Move Trainer 2.0, uh, listeners, you guys might have heard uh, Geert Vandervelt recently on the show talk about how that's coming soon, is scheduled to be released in April, is supposed to resolve this. Does this mean that all books have to be updated and authors have to change alternative moves to equivalent lines is this correct the move trainer it change seems relatively minor compared to the magnitude of all the book changes what is the plan to implement this yeah so that was one of the most common comments questions i was getting after the magnus video was released what about the alternative moves thing because for those of you who don't know so this is a, a course where you're drilling the solutions to it and in end games very often there will be equivalent moves so you can play one of maybe 10 moves, let's say, that still win the position. But in the course itself, the author has chosen usually just one line or possibly a couple other variations they may show that are equivalent. But our move trainer encourages you to find one line for the, the long solution. So it has presented a, a programming dilemma. That's the main thing about it. It's It comes down to a programming dilemma. How do you integrate these alternative solutions, table-based wins or draws into our move trainer. And we do hope to address that at some point. I actually went to our CEO to ask, and he said there's not a strict timeline for it. But yeah, it's it's one thing we want to work on for the future, because I think it would be great if you could play out the an equivalent solution, and it would somehow seamlessly correspond to the actual line. But of course, the big issue is the tree of variations just becomes so huge so quickly. Mm-hmm. So trying to program that all in and do it in a seamless way is quite challenging. I'm I'm not uh, a technically minded person, or nor do I have any programming experience at all. So <laughs> I'm basically relating what our Chessable team ha- has told me. 
But yeah, something we'd like to work on for the future. Yeah, that makes sense. It's definitely it does, as you mentioned, strike me as a unique challenge for for this particular book with openings. There's not going to be a lot of alternative moves. I mean, you're trying to remember certain things. And even with tactics puzzles, you might find a move that wins material when they're looking for something that wins even more material or something. But it's not going to be like this never ending tree, whereas end games in particular, that could be a challenge. Yeah, it's different than just clicking through a table base and seeing where the branches lead and how the moves proceed. It's the author has put the variation, the main variation there for a reason, usually because it's the most efficient way to win. Not always, but usually that's the case. And um, yeah, Magnus had a great another great quote. He said, um, short diagonal, long solution. When, <laughs> yeah, yeah, when it, that was really funny. Yeah, <laughs> It was a opposite color bishop endgame where you're on the defensive side and you're holding up two pawns by, by keeping your bishop on one diagonal. And he's he's like tongue in cheek. Oh, a short diagonal, long solution. Yeah, he's, he's really funny, especially uh, considering that English is not his native language. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, he's a witty guy. And he doesn't uh, hold back. I mean, just again, like some background on my Magnus interaction. He is pretty much exactly like he comes across on videos and in interviews. Uh, just to the point, nice guy, witty guy. I think he has a low tolerance for people wasting his time. And if he feels like his time is being wasted, I believe he mentally checks out pretty fast. So, um, you know, that wasn't a problem for us, of course. I think he was actually fairly into it. I hope I was able to draw that out of him. But if anyone was curious what he's like in person, just in my brief 30-minute interaction with him, it's pretty much spot on from what you would expect. Yeah, and I've heard that about other top players, not in a, like extremely negative sense it's just their their brains work so fast you know <laughs> that, mm. that uh that it's um yeah i i think it's the these routine if they're in like routine social situations i think it can be hard to uh to um feign delight mm-hmm. yeah yeah magnus is not the type who's going to be like if, if he's clearly unsatisfied with something he's not the type who's going to play diplomatic and pretend that he's okay with it <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, which, and he's not doing it to be mean or put you down or anything, but you generally know what you're getting with him, I think. Yeah, and when you're the when you're the world champion, you've earned that right, <laughs> basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so, John, but let's talk a little bit more about the making of this course. I mean, you know, last time we talked two and a half years ago, Chessable was taking off, but you were making a lot of YouTube videos. I'm imagining you were doing more private lessons than you are these days, and now it's like you you disappear and you, you the video. Um, explaining how, explaining the thought processes for each position in 100 Endgames, you must know. The video itself is like 19 hours, and it was months in the making. So how does that compare to, the, to what you used to call chess work? Yeah, it, it's very interesting because I feel I'm in an awesome spot right now where I have too many opportunities for the amount of time that I have in a given day. And I feel very grateful to be in this situation. Um, so my... I mostly work for myself. I spend a lot of time on Chessable as well, consulting on major business decisions when I can, helping the company as much as possible, making content, as in the case of this 100 Endgames course. But I've never worked full-time for Chessable. So uh, as far as who to give credit for that site, it goes completely to our team, the vast majority of it, uh, especially David. Uh, But yeah, I, I still love teaching. That's my first love. I think it'll always be my first love in chess. So I do a fair amount of that. That's probably about 75% of my time that I spend on chess these days is teaching. And I have about 15 to 20 students at any given time. There was a period of time, I'd say around 2015, 
maybe even into 2016, where I had 35 or even 40 students at one point, which was absolutely insane. I don't know if I mentioned that on our previous podcast, but if anyone is a a chess teacher out there or thinking about getting into it, I personally think if you're doing it full time, 15 to 20 is the sweet spot. That's a, yeah, that's a lot as far as I'm, I mean, that's on the high end, I think of, I mean, I know there's chess teachers who, who have 30 students, there's plenty of them, but to me, it's like, definitely I'm, I'm a worse teacher at that, at some point, you know? Yeah. Um, it was one of those things where it's start, the ball started rolling so fast and I was getting so many inquiries so quickly. And I was just like, yep, I'll take you. Yep. Let's do it. And very soon you're like looking at your calendar and you're teaching for six or seven hours a day, which is just not sustainable. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually surprised you're still doing as many as you are. I mean, not, not, not surprised that you're in high demand, but just like something like this course seems like such a large scope. Yep. And I almost completely took a huge amount of time off teaching in order to make this course. So I started in about mid-October and I finished right after the new year. And I was teaching a little bit in between here and there, but mostly I was working on these videos. Wow. So like full-time and, job sort of thing. Yeah. And it might be interesting for, pe- for people to hear about how you create a video course like that. So you know, 100 Endgames, you must know it's a print book. It consists of, of course, these 100 Endgame positions. And it's not like you just make 100 videos for 100 positions and call it a day. Many of these positions have alternative variations informational lines that the author throws in. He might include a diagram saying, okay, here's the main ending, but here's also a few diagrams that you should know where the winning or drawing strategy will be slightly different. So I wanted it to be comprehensive. So I I went through all those positions as well. And in many cases, just outright explain them, even if the author talked about it just in passing, because I I really felt that was important to give people their money's worth and truly extrapolate on uh, the relevant end games. So I basically made, I think, around 220 mini videos for these endgames, and they varied widely in length. I mean, some of them were as short as two or three minutes, but I know one was a 25-minute video for Rook and Bishop versus Rook, one of everyone's favorite theoretical mm-hmm. endgames, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is a drawish endgame. It's usually drawn with best play from both sides, but... There are certain positions that are winning. So I I vividly remember explaining the Philidor position in that, which is a position that the defensive side should avoid falling into, which is winning if the offensive side can execute it correctly. I vividly remember explaining that one for 25 minutes. Yeah. And then, I mean, the the concrete nature of the positions are such where I often did re-records. I mean, no joke, I probably re-recorded 10,000 times for these videos. Wow, man. And... Most of them were I messed up right at the beginning because I, I found that was often the hardest part was explaining the end game uh, at the outset of it. So I'd be talking about a position. I tried to like very efficiently explain what the relevant theme was. And then I would go into the analysis and actually explaining these end games in concrete terms is, is pretty difficult. And if you mess up at the beginning, I was often just like starting over. And I have perfectionist tendencies, so this was like more or less a nightmare for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I was satisfied at the end of the day with what I created. And uh, that's, I think, the most important thing when you're tackling a big project like that. Yeah, that so, makes sense. Yeah, made over 200 mini videos that were edited into more digestible chapters. And we also got to add the Magnus basic test, him taking the, the basic test, the 26-question test in the course, too. 
Yeah. And speaking of the Philidor position, um, we should mention you have, you also put out a little free boot camp with uh, five um, of the cl- the classic end games, the Lucina position. I think it might be correctly pronounced Lucina, but I, I, I refuse to pronounce things correctly. So <laughs> um, f- f- Philidor um, um, and a few others. So uh, listeners. Also, who- I learned Va- Vancouver. Everyone says Vancouver defense or Vancouver position. It's Ventura. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that one either. Um, yeah. But but um but yeah so so listeners can check out the free boot camp and and yeah I, one other thing I wondered in watching this um is um how much better did you feel like you were at the end games at the end like I'm guessing you would pass a test pretty firmly at the beginning of the course but to teach it I feel like you must be like a world authority on these end games now yeah I think it helped solidify some things and also even just putting a name to concepts that kind of like Magnus in that video, I have known for a long time or thought I knew, but I never really thought about the mechanics of them and why they work. Uh, For example, there's something called the floating square, the rule of the floating square, which determines if two pawns can promote on their own against an enemy king. Hmm. So if you imagine pawns separated by two or three files or even one file, can they promote on their own or will they need help? And basically, if you draw a line down to the promotion rank and then an equidistant line connecting the pawns, if that square has to be a a square or a a rectangle reaches the back rank or beyond, then the pawns can promote on their own. And if not, the pawns need help. Interesting. Um, There's also something called bird's color rule, which comes up in a king and two pawns versus king ending I talk about in the course at length and various iterations of it which I had never heard about, which is actually kind of cool. It's about how to time the pawn moves so that when you make a pawn break and there's a pawn trade, you can win the resulting king and pawn versus king ending if you're the offensive side. So yeah, there were a number of these things that it was interesting going through and really solidifying in your head and being able to put a name to it. That's cool, because of course chess is famous for people putting their names on openings, but endgames, I didn't, I didn't realize it was as prevalent other than the like super well-known ones we've already mentioned. Right. You got to put yep. your name on one, John. You should have slid it in there. And this is the Bartholomew position. <laughs> it's getting harder and harder to do in chess, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. E- even the Scandi, I have no, no, uh, no chance at that unless I maybe invent a sub variation or something. Huh? Yeah. Although we- the three Queen D eight Scandi is maybe still unclaimed. I don't well, think that one has a, a name. Yeah. Well, if anyone, I mean, if anyone has popularized, excuse me, popularized it, it is you. <laughs> I'm sure Greg Shahadi will be thrilled to to know that well, if I don't my name know, gets attached to it. Well, I don't know if you heard the news, but he's trying to talk his way into Team Scandi. I had him on like uh, a month ago, and he he talked about how it's an underrated opening and so oh, on. Oh, really? So, yeah. That, so- that sounds like trolling. But yeah, <laughs> no, I, I think he was serious. He's, he's, come, <laughs> he's come full circle. Um, <laughs> but anyway, John, one more thing on the course. I did want to bring up... Um, uh, as regular listeners will know, I don't post a ton on Chess Reddit, but I try to keep up with uh, with Chess News by checking it out a few times a week. And there was a thread called, Are Chessable Video Courses Worth the Money? And various people weighing in. And um, I thought it would be interesting to to ask you generally. I mean, so basically, um, some people, uh, you know, it's uh, right now it's on sale for $130, your video course. Obviously, if you just get the the book course, it's significantly less than that. And they just, they just weren't sure um, whether the additional uh, outlay is worth the cost. Obviously, um, people looking to get better at chess are, it, it can be expensive. So I certainly understand where they're coming from. Um, so I just, I, th- I thought I sent you a link to the thread. I don't know if you got a chance to check it out. I can raise a couple of the talking points 
in general, but but sure. what, what would be your general take on that topic? Yeah, it's definitely understandable. And if you look at the way chess products have been priced over the years, uh, I tend to think they have been on the cheap side, personally. I mean, if you think about how much work it, it takes to make a high-level opening book and all of the hundreds of hours that go into that, and often how little the authors are paid for that if you break it down like on an hourly basis. I've often felt that that chess books are a bit underpriced, if anything. Um, now, one thing we're happy about with Chessable is that the user typically has options, right? So you can buy either just the course itself or the course plus video. So 400 endgames, you must know, you could get the course itself, which is everything in the book and the move trainer synced variations for under 20 bucks. But if you were interested in the videos and wanted to hear my explanations, it's over 19 hours of, of content um, meticulously explained, then you could upgrade to the video course. And if you break that down per hour, it's not that much. It's under $10 an hour. It's like seven or eight bucks or something. So I, I get what people are saying about that. And uh, we definitely want content to be affordable for people. But in looking at our sales and how stuff sells, it's it's evident that people will pay for quality. And if you go through the the effort to make a comprehensive course, people will support you with that and support the site. So it's a balancing act, right? Like at the end of the day, as Chessable, the company, and now the Play Magnus group, we have to make money. So we're pricing things accordingly. We operated at a loss for years. I mean, that's just the nature of being a startup. So you got to turn a profit at some point. And... Uh, I think it's a worthwhile investment for people if they they understand that they're buying a course they may come back to for uh, years or you know many times over. So what's nice is having the option, you know, again, you don't have to purchase a video course. I totally understand if people aren't interested in going that route, could just get the course itself. Um, but I think if you look at it as an investment and think about the amount of hours that went into it and also the cost per per hour of video, let's say, it's it's not all that unusual. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, okay, I mean, first of all, obviously, you're the co-founder of Chessable. I'm happy to have Chessable sponsorship of of the show. So obviously, I mean, you know, listeners can can <laughs> can form their own judgment about. Oh yeah, we don't about, want this to be Chessable sales pitch. Yeah, right? I mean, and about <laughs> how biased we may or may not be. But I mean, I would just say, I mean, it's a 19 hour video, and obviously, if you're hiring you or a, a comparable player to give 19 hours of instruction on Endgame, um, 130 dollars or even the non sale price um, is going to be a bargain. But ult ultimately, it's obviously up to the consumer. Um, you know, you guys have reviews on the sites and so on and so forth. But I did think it would only be fair if um, if we at least discuss the topic, um, because, I, yeah, I mean, it, chess is an expensive hobby at times. Um, you you know, you've got to there's there are free resources. People can find ways to, to learn for free and on Chessable and on YouTube and chess.com and so many other sites. Um, but at some point there, you know, you just have to make a decision about certain things. And I do think that this course in particular um I feel like 
these these concepts are pretty can be pretty tough like end games in particular as compared to openings if you're just buying an opening book um mm-hmm. i think it can be helpful to have someone walk you through these things and a lot also might come down to a case by case basis of like someone's learning style like some people are able to just sit with a book or sit uh, you know with an online course and just remember what they read but other people might be more visually based in their learning yeah. Yeah. And one other thought that came to mind is is maybe chess has suffered from the fact that it is a game for many years. And I think a lot of people mentally have priced what they're willing to spend as such. Uh, but I mean, if you compare like a chess professional to a lawyer or something like no one's really surprised if a lawyer in the U.S. charges 300 to 500 an hour. Right. But if even a very top chess coach professional were to charge that people are like whoa like that's that's outrageous and hence you see a lot of people advertising their services for chess lessons who are extremely qualified but the rate is just so ridiculously low for if you think about their expertise in this subject what tenth of a percent that they're in and you know they might only be charging 20 or 30 dollars an hour let's say yeah it can yeah it can be quite the bargain yeah and the number of hours they've they've put in as compared to say as you say, like a top top level lawyer, um, it's comparable, um, right? Um, right. So that, that's obviously part of a larger conversation, but it is something I would encourage people to keep in mind. And I think it's one reason why it's almost impossible, or previously has been almost impossible, to make a living in chess. I actually think that has changed quite significantly over the past five to ten years, and I hope it will continue to change in the coming years. But prior to the internet, I mean. To make money in chess, if you're not uh, an absolute top-level player, you're giving lessons in person, you're maybe writing a little bit, which really hasn't paid well typically. Um, so I, I kind of think it's it's been a very positive development that chess works so well with the internet, and there are now these additional opportunities for chess professionals to earn a good living. Yeah, and I think there's a lot more possible. I mean, you know, anyone listening to this is probably pretty enthusiastic about chess and investing in in your own chess knowledge can, you know, lead to opportunities for for oneself, um, increased opportunities. And of course, it doesn't help that your boss, I mean, it doesn't hurt that your boss Magnus is is reinvesting in the game, um, you know, through the acquisition of Chessable and Chess24. So um, yeah, obviously people make your own decision. Um, but I did. Thanks, John, for, for being willing to, to discuss that. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And actually before we move on to other topics, John, uh, gear is, um, now that we're doing ads for Chessable this year, geared is who I interface with. And, um, he mentioned that you might, or rather he, so he volunteered you, I should say to do a live ad. So what's, what's your 30 second final sales pitch, John, for, uh, for, <laughs> for your video course. <laughs> your listeners are probably like, haven't we talked about Chessable enough? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I would say Chessable is a great resource. Uh, for working on your game and a variety of aspects of game of your of your chess game, um, I personally think our site works best for memorizing openings and assimilating opening concepts that you know you're going to be repeating in games. I think it works great for sets of endgame problems, like woodpecker method style. I think it works really well for like hundred endgames, very concrete positions. Even having said all that. I think chessable shouldn't be more than five to 10% of your total chess study time. And obviously you can calibrate that the way you want it. But um, yeah, I think we offer a ton. We have so many courses, both free and paid. If you're interested in just seeing what chess chessable is about, go on. It costs nothing to join the site. Check out the short and sweet courses for our openings. 
and also take a look at um, some of our other free courses. There's a user, his name is Alan B., who created a series of courses called On the Attack, which deal with all the pieces in chess. So pawns, bishops, knights, rooks, etc. There's an On the Attack for each of those pieces, and you can drill tactical positions specifically related to those pieces. And it's a good way to uh, minimize blunders, for instance. If you're consistently making, say, long-range bishop move blunders in your games, you can go on and, and do that. So, yeah, it's just another tool in the vast number of, of resources that are out there for chess improvement, and we're striving to make it as great a tool as possible. John, that was more than 30 seconds. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah, and the one other thing we should add is uh, John's course is on sale through February 16th. So if you guys are, as you should be, listening to this quickly af- after it comes out, um, get it while you can. And also, uh, when Geert was on, we mentioned that the Chessable Lifetime membership is ending. So we also wanted to give a final warning about that for regular Chessable users. You have till February 16th for that. Um, but all right, John, let's, let's move on to chess improvement. Great. Okay. So question from Peter Newhall, um, friend of the podcast, active in the online chess world. And I believe he's from Minnesota, John. Yeah. Have... Shout out to Peter. I met him before. Okay. I figured, I figured, you know, how many, how many chess playing Minnesotans can there be, you know? Um, yeah. so here's Peter's question. Um, he says, one of your recent tweets seemed like it was targeted directly at me. You said, time spent on any challenging chess work is far better than time spent planning the perfect, in quotes, chess study schedule. That's your tweet. And then Peter says, with seemingly infinite materials available, how much planning is appropriate so a student can feel like they're actually making some sort of progress? How do you have students follow this advice? Yeah, and as far as that tweet goes, I feel like it's kind of like uh, asset allocation with your investments, let's say. You know, the vast majority of financial advice says if you want to grow your money, you keep it pretty simple and it's pretty boring <laughs> in the sense that you don't have to change the plan too much. You you invest in stocks, you invest in bonds, maybe you work out the percentage that you want to put in in each. But once you decide what to do, you pretty much just leave it and you and uh, you go. And I feel like with chess, like the meat and potatoes of what you should be doing are playing longer games analyzing those games afterwards, possibly annotating them a bit and working on your calculation. And especially for amateur players, if you do those things, playing longer games, analyzing, annotating, working on your calculation, solving tactics, I think that already puts you ahead of like 95% of people who are playing chess. And certainly there are many more important things as well, working on openings, studying endgame theory, but to at least get you over the hump and get you to a a competent level, like that's what you need to focus on initially. So I know Peter is a slightly higher rated player, so he probably has more uh, specific demands, but I think anything that is challenging to you. So if you're working through a book and you're like, man, I really have to strain myself to solve these correctly, but I can actually solve these positions if I spend enough time. I think that type of work is perfect. You know, for a book example, I think, uh, Arthur Yusupov's uh, books, his nine series of books, Chess Fundamentals is the first one, um, I think is a fantastic resource that would probably take the average person maybe um, 15 hours of sustained study to work through. It's it's sort of billed as maybe a book for lower level players under 1500, let's say, but I worked through that book on my own and it was quite challenging even wow. as an IM at times. So any sort of work like that is awesome. And I think it matters less what it's actually about and more that you stick to it is my main point so, with that tweet. 
More deliberate practice, less, less planning. Less planning, because the more you plan, the more you postpone the actual work and the hard work that's going to get you to that level. And you can always readjust. I, I've, I haven't seen elaborate chess study plans work too well with people. It certainly hasn't worked for me. I've always given up and just done what I found enjoyable and what I found to be working on any given day or week. Um, very few people I know actually develop a extensive plan and stick to it. So, you know, you want chess to be fun. I assume that's the goal for most people. So choose challenging work, commit to the longer games, practice your tactics religiously and, and you'll make strides, no doubt. And then, you know, if you continue to see things that crop up in your game that you can improve upon, then you can start tweaking around the edges and drill down a little bit more specifically, maybe with um, working on your openings, tackling a new uh, repertoire, learning theoretical end games, that sort of thing. Okay, good advice. Um, yeah, and, and I know it's tempting, but, but like I, I get where Peter's coming from because even when I think about competing again, um, it's it's so daunting thinking about all the different areas of one's game that that one would like to address. But yeah, it's yeah, just just start studying. Don't uh, don't don't. I think with openings, people especially get caught up on it, right? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. how many people do you know in chess who constantly talk about how their opponents know more in the opening than they do? Yeah, it's virtually everyone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, everyone thinks that their opponents know more than they do, and of course, like just logically, that can't be true. So, yeah, I think a common scenario is someone has never played an over-the-board tournament or maybe hasn't played for an extended period of time, and they're thinking, oh, man, I got to overhaul my entire opening repertoire. I got to sit down and just drill everything out. And I don't think that's true. I mean, I think you should, of course, try to work on some stuff that you think you might encounter, but you're never going to get to a point where you feel 100% prepared. Even the absolute professionals don't feel 100% prepared every time they sit down, I'm sure. That's funny, There's always like lines in the back of their head, like, oh, maybe I should have looked at that more. That's funny because that, that, of course, is exactly how I feel. <laughs> right. <laughs> I need to, need to start from ground zero. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, with openings, just one little piece of advice that has worked very well for me and my students is, um, let's say you want to study a new opening for the first time. Definitely don't go in and just buy a book, buy a course, and memorize all the theory. I think that's exactly the opposite of what you should do. I think you should actually try to play the opening a little bit in a longer game or, you know, some sort of faster equivalent where you can actually think a little bit, look up the theory a bit afterwards. So consult like the Lee chess database, for instance, is a good free resource to do that and use that as a roadmap to get a feel for the opening, click around, explore the tree, uh, see if you actually enjoy the positions that you're seeing in the database or that you experienced in those practice games before you commit to studying reams of theory. Um, I think people get discouraged when they, they study, uh, a 300 page opening book and then they realize they don't actually like the positions that they intended to play. Yeah. Yeah. That, that wouldn't be a good feeling. Um, so, yeah. cool. Good. Practical. Yeah. So good advice, John. We have a few more re improvement related questions, so I'm just going to keep them rolling. Sure um, thing. Uh, this, and thanks again, listen, um, supporters of the show for all the good questions. This one's from Neil Bruce who says, in your opinion, what are the major skill gaps between FIDE masters and international masters? 
Yeah, and shout out to Neil as well. I met him uh, in Boston, actually, right around the time we did our last. Oh, podcast. cool! Yeah, you talked about that that meetup um, in our last interview. Um, I didn't realize that yeah. Neil was there. I've only I've only talked to him on Skype, so you've got me beat. Yeah, he's a great guy. Also very active on Twitter. Uh, my answer to this one's going to be real boring. I think it's similar to the gap between IM and GM. I think IMs are better in all phases of the game than FMs. And I don't think there's any one thing that really stands out. I think from IM to GM, there's a clear difference in the caliber of opening and early middle game work that has been done by the grandmasters compared to the IMs. Speaking from experience, like I often will, if I'm playing over the board, I often feel like these GMs have looked into the positions in greater depth, even though I realize I'm just saying exactly what I said a moment ago about feeling like you're underprepared against everyone. Mm, right. <laughs> um, but no, I think when you're going up levels in chess, it's going to be holistic, right? There's not going to be certain things that absolutely stand out at every step of the way. Uh, so just the totality of the amount of time and deliberate practice that these higher rated players have spent reflects in every phase of the game, opening, middle and end game. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's just such a such a rich game. Um, and that that, of course, calls to mind the question, John, uh, the perhaps um, dreaded question of uh, if uh, what's going on with your GM chase? Is it uh, firmly on the back burner? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, it's pretty dormant right now. So I have one Grandmaster Norm, which I achieved about six years ago now. And I, I was close a couple times in 2017, 2018. I took a little bit of time off to play GM Norm eligible tournaments and there was one tournament in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I needed to win in the final round and I only drew. It was heartbreaking. There was a moment in a rook ending where I was in time pressure, mutual time pressure, had a choice between two moves. And one of them was winning and one of them was only drawing. And you can guess which one I chose. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I drew that game and missed out on the norm by half a point. It was a round robin tournament. So I, I've been close a couple times, but I honestly don't feel... I'm capable of scoring a grandmaster norm uh, in you know any random GM norm I'm, event I play at the moment because I have just not been putting in the work. So to make another go at it, I'd have to set aside a huge amount of time to mostly get myself up to playing speed and playing tournaments to do so. I think I need to play a sustained series of events, reflect on things, do some work for sure on like openings and calculation in particular. But uh, it'll be a while given that I'm busier than ever these days. Yeah, it, it's so tough to, to find the time. Did cause, uh, But when I was watching your, your Endgames video, it kind of made me want to play. So did, oh, nice. Does, does, I mean, I'm not going to, <laughs> but, but it's <laughs> similar to you. It's just I have too much other stuff to do, but it made me want to. Did you have that feeling like when you get in the lab making these uh, these videos and really breaking things down in like a granular fashion, does that make you just want to like fire up a Blitz game or like check the tournament schedule? Not so much that because your focus is so much on just the content and making sure you're explaining it as best as possible to the audience. But I will say when I'm around other chess players and especially my peers, you know, other title players and we're hanging out playing blitz or whatever, maybe drinking a little bit <laughs> like then you're like, man, I wish I could be back in uh, the chess playing scene or I should do this more often. Like this is really fun and this is why I got into chess in the first place. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And speaking of the the norm chases, you know, I, I remember 
when you when you were playing a bunch of tournaments and you would you would make little video updates about them. I think we talked about this a bit in your in your first appearance. Like I would really, you know, it's like you really root for the person and you really feel it when yeah. when like you just miss something and you know, like Casa Corley, I am Casa Corley was on the show a while back and he's been playing a lot chasing the the GM title and it's like you guys are so so freaking good at chess. And to so to see that to see that it's not just like a foregone conclusion. It's it really really puts into perspective how how complex this game is. Yeah, and I think people appreciate others who are striving to reach the top of their profession, especially when there's not a financial reward for doing so. It's just purely to see how far you can go. I mean, Fide doesn't hand you like 100K when you make make the Grandmaster title. <laughs> yeah, far from it. <laughs> right, you just, uh, they literally change one letter in your name on the Fide website from I to G, if assuming you're an international master and you, know, you get a certificate and whatnot, but it's mainly to prove to yourself that you can do it. And that's true of any uh, category going from, you know, candidate master to FM, let's say, um, or just increasing your rating in general. It doesn't have to be a, uh, a title per se. I think I, I always appreciate in any craft or discipline, someone trying to strive to maximize their talents. Yeah, exactly. Well said. Um, okay. Speaking of which, um, on to the other part of the question from Han Shu. I uh, broke them up because this one is um, unrelated to to your course. So Han <laughs> asks, uh, he says, based on your extensive experience with Chessable and being one of the founders, which best practices lead to the biggest rating improvements with your students? So you kind of touched on this with Peter, but with Peter's question, but um, you could take right. This and one is too. this specific uh, to Chessable? You think he's asking about? Um. I would guess so, especially since you already answered it sort of broadly with Peter. You might as well um, sort of yeah, yeah. Hit, hit it from that angle. Yep, because my broad answer won't change. I think playing those longer games and committing to analyzing them uh, is it, just so critical. I talk about this in my Chess Fundamentals series on YouTube. Like People just don't really do that, and that brings by far the most improvement of anything else you can do. I mean, that's why, especially if you haven't played an over-the-board tournament before, I would recommend to anyone serious about their, their their chess improvement to do so as soon as possible because you'll walk away from your first over-the-board event with a ton to work on and also knowing how seriously you want to take chess going forward. Uh, as far as chessable specifically, I would pick one or two courses that you feel you could really learn a lot from and just do those. I wouldn't skip around or try to take on too many courses at a time. So... For example, the Woodpecker method is a course that we have on Chessable that works really well with our platform and the Move Trainer module. That's yeah, great, by great for tactics, right? I'm sure many of your guests have mentioned that, that oh, yeah. book before. Axel Smith, Hans Deakinen, it's awesome. We have a series called um, Checkmate Patterns by a user Crafty Raff, which is just a ton of essential checkmate patterns, and he breaks them down and the mechanics of them. Um, of course, our opening. Our opening courses are, are good ones to look at. The short and sweet for free, which I've already mentioned. Those are all our free opening courses. So I would say with Chessable, just don't try to take on too much. Focus on one or two at a time. Okay. And in terms of the angle about biggest rating improvements, I mean, what what do you notice with your students who have the most success, John? I would say it's their diligence in committing to the longer time controls and the reflection that they do on those games. Yeah, uh, so I'm one of my most successful students right now. He just played his first series of OTB events in this past year, 
And he's now, I believe, rated about 1650 USCF. And adult started taking chess seriously about a year and a half ago. And this guy is just extremely diligent and, and dedicated to the time he's investing in these tournaments. You should he, give him a shout out unless you think he wouldn't want to be named, John. Oh, yeah. His name is Tim. Okay. So shout out to Tim. He, he does exactly what we set out to do when we talked about his goals initially when we first started working together privately. Um, he annotates all of his games. He preps for them, too. He, he looks up his openings, uh, the, the openings that his opponents are playing. He uh, works on any sort of holes in his repertoire in between events. He does all the exercises that I assign to him. I create Lee Chess studies and send my students exercises. So he's always very good with that. And he just does a lot of the due diligence that you would expect for someone coming up, coming up the ranks. I know that sounds like so simple. I mean, people are probably like, what's so impressive about this? But even if he's playing a longer game online, like he sticks it in a study and he annotates it. And is he, use, the, is he using the engine right away or is he annotating without the engine first? No, annotating without the engine and then adding the engine in as a check, just as I've advocated in uh, my videos. Cool. Yeah. And for listeners, speaking of free resources, I actually, John, I need to check out as a chess teacher, I need to check out your chess fundamentals series because I know it's um, gets quite high praise from from lots of people. Yeah, thank you. And uh, also for free resources, I think Lee Chess is awesome. It's a yeah, we should. Free yeah, I feel like I don't give them enough shout outs. Just an amazing. Sorry, sorry to cut you off. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, no, absolutely. We're on the same page about that. But the Lee Chess study feature, if you guys haven't checked it out, is is excellent for teaching. You can make a study and then you can invite people to it or you can just keep it as your own private study. You can upload FENs, PGNs, uh, edit things, add in the engine, add in table bases even in the study. You can seamlessly do annotations there. And I think really just aggregating your games and reflecting on them and adding in notes is so helpful. Like That's probably my number one tip along with playing longer games in general. Um, the people who do that, like that's, that's the common thread, I guess, getting back to the original question. That's the common thread I see from people who get better. It's not like how many pages in an opening book do they crank out or even how many chessable moves that they're going over. It's the really like the reflection on their, on their play. I mean, chess, despite the engine superpowers, it's a game played between flawed humans, you know? Yeah. And and that's why I even try to be careful with recommending videos too, because Videos are important. Well, they can be important, right? But videos are not a panacea for chess improvement. So uh, I've said this even before with my YouTube channel and even at this 100 Endgames course. Like the reason I like this one and wanted to do this video course is because it's so concrete and helpful. But, you know, videos at the end of the day are pretty passive learning and you're going to get a lot better by actually digging into your game yourself. Yeah. Which, of course, uh, yeah, which... Uh, poses the question of like so many people just it's all it can be hard to get to tournaments so it's you know yeah right. understandable why people run into trouble but but the, it's, the lee chess leagues by the way the lone wolf and the 45 45 league are awesome for people especially who can't get to tournaments those are free leagues they pair you up with people around your rating you get your uh opponent in advance and it's a great way to get your foot in the door also chess.com has similar leagues the slow chess league on there uh, ICC even has a 45-45 league, if anyone out there still uses ICC. <laughs> shout out to the OG chess site. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. ICC was the best. Internet chess club. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Um, cool. All right. Another, another listening, excuse me, another listener question. Uh, one more on chess improvement. Uh, this one is from recent new, uh, supporter of the podcast, Wayne beam. So Wayne, thank you for the support. And he says, um, John, I love your work. Thank you. Thank you for it. I'm enjoying the hundred end games videos immensely. If I want more drills, what's a good place for end game studies? For example, are chess.com tactics filtered by end game a good place to start? Or do you recommend a specific end game puzzle book? Thanks. Well, thanks to Wayne for picking up the course. I appreciate that. And if anyone has any questions on the course, they can always get in touch with me on Twitter or on Chessable. As far as other end game practice, I wrote a few things down for this actually. Because um, I got these questions from from Ben in advance. Um, so one one book I really like for endgames is by Johan Helston. He's a Swedish grandmaster. It's called Mastering Endgame Strategy. It's part of a three-book series. thing I like about this book is it has tons of exercises in it. So it explains endgame practice, but it's also very exercise-heavy. And some really good, well-selected exercises, too. I think there's two to 300 problems for, for endgames in that one. Uh, Chess Tempo has endgame sets that you can you can work on there. You can even make your own sets of problems there. So Chess Tempo is another good resource. I would also say just playing out endgames against a training partner or the engine is fantastically helpful. I mentioned this in the 100 endgames course too, but the true test is if you can actually execute these endings and apply your knowledge in games, right? So, you know... Uh, Rook and Bishop versus Rook is a, is a great, revisiting that example, that's a great one to practice from either the offensive or defensive side. If you're familiar with the main defensive methods, the Cochrane defense and the second rank defense, those are the two big ones that you should know, then theoretically you should be able to hold it against a, an engine. And that, that'll sound daunting if the engine's on full strength, but that's how you're really going to test your knowledge. So those are some additional ways to work on your end game. Okay, excellent advice. And of course, in your first appearance, you recommended and many others have recommended uh, from amateur to IM, which is, I think, less drill focused, but but yeah. uh, a lot of good endgame stuff. Um, yep. And any other, um, John, are you managing to keep up with the chess literature with all your uh, with all your responsibilities? Anything else yeah. uh, strike your fancy recently? I have not. You know, I don't think I bought a chess book a print book that is in the last two years and even the digital stuff, I really haven't been been buying much because I reached a saturation point with my chess library. I'm staring at my chess books right now, by the way, I have probably 300 or so chess books and I can confidently say I, I probably only read about 5% of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As is I, common. I, yeah. 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 Probably no, nothing new here, but I breezed through a ton of them, but I haven't, dug in as deeply as I should to many of them. So I, I realized that and I just stopped buying a lot of them at some point. But I, I would, if there was a course that I'm really interested in, like if I got time, I'd love to work through Jan Gustafsson's E4, E5 course on Chessable because the Marshall attack is is something that has always fascinated me, even though I don't play it for either colors, Marshall Gambit. And that's what he primarily focuses on in that course for black. Yeah, and obviously Jan, world authority on openings and makes his videos entertaining. So, um, yeah. Um, all right, let's see. So John, one other thing I wanted to highlight is, uh, I wanted to remind you in our first conversation, one of the ideas you had, you had a few good business ideas that I felt like were still applicable chess business, even, even listening today. One of which was, you were saying that a top 10 player should, should be a Twitch streamer, that that would be popular. Uh -huh. 
Did so, I, I said that in the, you, in the previous you, you podcast? You said that. So I was wondering nice. if uh, Hikaru is sending you royalty checks. <laughs> yeah, it was just a trend that seemed pretty apparent to me a couple years ago. I think I tweeted about it, too. I said, you know, we're just at like the infancy of chess streaming. It's going to blow up in the next couple of years. And yeah, nowadays, if you log on to Twitch at any given time, it seems like there's, you know, lots of people streaming chess. So yeah, yeah I think that's still a great not only fun thing to do, but also just a great marketing vehicle. If people want to promote their own products or whatnot, yeah, just hop on and, and give back a little bit. I, I've definitely noticed that that's um, a great way to get your foot in the door of just making a name for yourself in the chess world, like give away good, high quality, free content. And don't worry about, you know, the fact that you're not going to make money on it initially, that should be a secondary goal. I mean, I've always felt if you put out good work and people appreciate it, you'll make money at some point. Yeah. So yeah, it's good to see Hikaru doing that. And I, I hope other top players, whether it's Twitch or, you know, we just had Wesley. So make a course for chessable actually officially. Yeah. yeah. that That's a, looking forward to that one. Yeah. Yeah. And Hikaru, I mean, it's, I don't, I don't get to watch a ton of Twitch streams, but I did one of the times that he was uh, streaming while he was playing in the pro chess league, just streaming his play. And man, it is something to see him calculate. It is just incredible. Yeah, unbelievable. I mean, I saw a comment on YouTube the other day. If you take a step back and just appreciate that, how literally one of the best players in the world is explaining their thoughts to you real time and just from the comfort of your own home, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. You don't, you don't really have to pay anything for that if you don't want to. Yeah. And then and then the other thing uh, you highlighted that hasn't been run with as much is you mentioned that um, a top 50 player should be doing vlogs, um, vlogs. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how I don't know the proper pronunciation, but, yeah. you know, we still have the chess bras holding it down and putting out great content. But but I don't feel like anyone of that level is really. And of course, I love when Fiona does blogs from events she's covering. Um, yeah, hers are great, really yeah. well edited and executed. Um, but yeah, I still feel like that's a niche for, uh, cause getting to top 50 in the world is that's the hard part, you know, yeah. like, like putting out some cool content. Like when, once you have that, that kind of, once you're in that rare air, it seems like, uh, someone needs to, uh, pick up the ball and run with it. Yeah. I mean, could you imagine if a camera crew was able to follow around uh, a top 10 player just for a year and just document their experiences and the emotional ups and downs and the sheer amount of work that goes in. I, I would love to watch that. Yeah. With um with as busy as you are, do you have any other John uh chess business ideas that you feel like are um underutilized by the chess community? I have a couple, but I'm going to keep them on the down low for now. <laughs> yeah, I understand. <laughs> Cuz they're pretty far out and also I should mention because Chessable was bought by Play Magnus and Chess24, I'm I'm kind of under that umbrella now and you know, I still have flexibility to do my own thing and whatnot, but I don't want to ever uh, at least within the period that I'm not allowed to do something that would compete with, with what we're doing and as, as the company. So still very much interested in uh, trying to further the group. You know, I haven't really even ch- talked about chess 24 as a site. It's one of the big chess platforms and they're making a, a ton of changes. They uh, are looking to upgrade their live server, for instance, which I think is one thing that has maybe held them back from certain markets and, just the playing experience in general, it's something people have commented on a lot. But now being on the ground floor, more or less, I see the amount of work that's going into Chess24, the Play Magnus group, what we're doing at Chessable. And I, I'm really excited about that direction. 
But uh, yeah, you know, I still have some personal ambitions as far as my my business stuff goes, but they probably won't be taking shape for quite a while. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, and, and it's it's good you mentioned that about Chess24. Of course, I, I love the people there. I mean, I'm old friends with Jan Gustafsson, but just generally, I'm a big fan of their products. So um, yeah, I definitely... Uh, never hurts to to improve improve um one's offerings yeah i mean just as something related to that uh, i think most everyone in the chess world the big movers and shakers in particular guys you see like danny wrench for instance uh awesome dude like really really nice guy i've known him for years and uh, it hurts when you see people like that like getting hate sometimes like i know his personality is not for everyone the dad jokes he makes and whatnot but i can tell you i know a lot of these top guys in the chess world, not top players, but, you know, people that are regular names, let's say streaming, making videos and everyone is awesome. I mean, even with chess.com. So it put me in a slightly awkward position this past summer because our company was bought by chess 24 play Magnus in August. And I was actually a signed as a streamer for chess.com at the time. So you can imagine as we were going through these negotiations, like that put me in a weird situation because, you know, I, I have a, always had good relations with chess.com and Danny. And I had a conversation with, with him at some point, like, Hey, this is what ha- what's happening. Um, and it was becoming apparent that I'm going to have like a competing interest and actually both sides, chess 24 and chess.com were really, were willing to let me maintain that relationship if I wanted so I could have continued streaming with chess.com, which would be kind of weird given that I have some small equity in chess 24 play Magnus, but uh, it never created any friction. Danny was totally cool about it. Chess 24 play Magnus were cool about it. And I think that that speaks volumes, honestly. Um, that's just something I wanted to mention about my interactions with these guys. That's cool. Yeah. And of course, the when I think of Danny, the thing, I mean, I know that Eric technically is the founder, but just the, the business they've built. I just have so much respect for for how much they've elevated chess over the years. So, um, yeah. as you say, some people may grumble about certain things about the company, but overall, they're just such a positive force for chess. Yeah, because there's so few key players that you know have a platform um, that if those didn't exist or they went away, then I mean, for chess professionals and just the visibility of the game in general, the fans there's a lot less to work with, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you really got to appreciate the Lee Chesses, the Chess.coms, the Chess24. I mean, really everyone who's yeah who's doing it full-time. Yeah, we're very lucky. And, John, you mentioned the negotiations a little bit. of um, Also you, by the way, Ben. With your oh, podcast. yeah, go on. I don't want to forget you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. So, John, you mentioned the negotiations with Chess24. I don't know how much you can say, but it did occur to me that our listeners would probably be interested in um, – like who you interfaced with, how long the negotiations took. Um, for, and this, of course, is for Magnus's company acquiring Chessable, of which you are the co-founder. So uh, mm-hmm. what, what would you be able to share about um, the, the, that happening? Yeah, so it was for a substantial amount of time in 2019 that we were talking to Chess24 and Play Magnus and testing the waters and then later when it looked like the acquisition was going to happen, of course, getting everything ironed out. There's obviously quite a bit of work that goes into that, especially legally to make sure everyone's protected. Uh, But yeah, it was, it was a a long process for sure. And I was a bit, not on the outside, but 
David Cramley, our CEO, and also Dimitri Schneider, friend of the pod too. He's an international master and he's our CFO. He, uh, he was one of our major investors initially, and he is now working full-time, obviously, as the CEO, but he was involved quite heavily with the negotiations as well. So I was privy to some of the conversations and participated in some, but I was mainly letting them do their thing because they have a tremendous amount of expertise and they really advocated for our best interests as well and made sure the acquisition went through smoothly. Cool. And on the Magnus side, I'm guessing they weren't, they weren't interacting with Magnus himself very much. No, I don't think so. I think Magnus has such a great team around him and there's a lot of people involved in this organization, right? I mean, just at Chessable, we have 30 people working for us. Which is awesome. Yeah, We have a 14 full-timers, 16 part-timers. So it's, it's a big team. And then if, we can, if you consider we're just one arm of, of that group, there's a lot of people working. So yeah, a lot of, uh, a lot of hands in the mix. And fortunately, it worked out really well. Yeah, well, it's great to see. I mean, and then it seems like if, if it's um, kind of turbocharged the ambitions both for Chessable and Chess24. So uh, not, nothing wrong with that. So excited to see what directions you guys take. Um, yeah, thanks. And John, one more topic I wanted to hit if you're up for it. Sure, um, absolutely. So Andrew Tang, famous Penguin GM, is your is your former student. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I was pretty sure. And actually, you know, I had DM'd you once because we were setting up a chess event here in Princeton and he goes to Princeton University. Um, uh, so he did a simul at Princeton Day School. Shout out to Andrew Tang. Shout out to Princeton Day School. Um, and he did a nice job, of course. And the kids, kids were super excited to see him. Um, but he's such a wizard. So I was just curious if you could tell some stories about like how when he when you started working with him, when you knew he was a special talent and stuff like that. Yeah, so he moved to Minnesota from the Chicago area when he was relatively young. I think he was a rated player already, but he really did grow up in our state chess scene. And I'd seen seen him at tournaments, um, had students that had played him in the past. It was clear he was a rising talent pretty early on. And it was funny, we started working together. I was not his only coach. He had another coach as well. And we started working together. And almost immediately in a weekend tournament, we got paired for the first time. And he beat me in our first encounter. So how old is he? What level was he? Um, he was probably, at that time, he was probably 13 or so, maybe 12. Okay. And he was about 2,200. Okay. Yeah, and he beat me. I was on the black side of a Jinji Indian, which uh, viewers of my YouTube and Twitch stuff will know that I like that opening. <laughs> and I played a decent game and thought I was outplaying him, but uh, he, he's very resourceful. And even at that age, he was incredibly adept at finding opportunities and uh, using the clock to his advantage as well. And he beat me like right out of the gate. And I was like, oh, man, is this dad going to fire me as a coach? Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, obviously, that's like one of the first things you think about. Um, but no, fortunately, we continued to collaborate and work together for a couple of years. And I helped him, I think, with mindset, mindset stuff in general and also some of his openings. He still plays quite a few openings that I taught him. Um, so it was cool to be a bit of a influence in someone like that. I was mentioning one little anecdote. So I, I gave Andrew as a warm-up problem, this very complicated defensive position where there are eight legal moves and all of them lose except for one, which wins. And at a glance, it's like not obvious which one is going to work. 
And I gave it to him as a warm-up problem right around the same time that he beat me in that tournament. He was, again, probably around 2,200. And he solved it in like 10 seconds. Right, of course. Like he solved it. We were doing in-person lessons. He solved it almost as soon as I finished setting up the position. And I've given this exercise to some of my other students and some of them have struggled for days on it. <laughs> like, yeah. Just to give you an idea of how tricky it, it, it is. Could you, uh, could you send me the position? Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. Can I share it with the, the listeners? Can I put a yeah. link in the show? Awesome. Yeah, yeah it's sure. a highly tactical position. It's one I got from Tunior Chess Tactics Antenna, actually, which is- Oh, another- yeah, which you also recommended. Yeah, so good. We can torture, torture our listeners now mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and make them feel, about, feel bad about how they don't compare to Andrew Tang, something uh, I, for one, have already come to grips with. So. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that, so, and have you had other students that, that were comparable? I'm just trying to get a sense, because of course, I mean- uh, I mean, especially watching him play bullet, it's just, it's like from another planet, you know? Yeah, no, he's far and away the most successful student I've had. I've had other students in the 22 to 2300 range, but actually nowadays I'm mostly working with, uh, lower rated amateur adult players. I actually don't coach too many kids these days. And I think that's mainly a reflection of my YouTube stuff. Most yeah. of my, my audience is adults, just kind of a switch in the demographics. When I was initially doing chess teaching, uh, pretty heavily, like seven, eight years ago, I had a lot more younger students. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, the, especially now YouTube's doing these weird content restrictions for kids. I mean, I totally understand why mm. they do it, but yeah, it's getting getting even the divide between adult and uh, child chess content on YouTube might be get even more um, more uh, distinct, right? Um, We'll see. Although I do have students who watch uh, watch Danny speaking, the aforementioned Danny Wrench and Robert Hess, who do a great job on the chess.com. But some of their some of their jokes are not. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm not not sure if I want my like, hopefully they're going over the head of my uh, second grade student. But <laughs> yeah, they're pretty good about it, but not totally family friendly. I, yeah. I yeah. <laughs> All <laughs> right. So so, John, just last topic. I mean, uh, I'm just curious because you've you've had so much you are already doing just fine when we talked um in 2017, but, um, you, you've had so much success since then. Has you, do you feel like your day-to-day life has changed much or is it same old, you in the same apartment in Minnesota? Um, mm-hmm. are, are you like, how's your day-to-day life these days compared to then? Yeah, I still live in the same townhome suburbs of twins of the twin cities. Um, I still do largely the same thing. I'm still drinking a copious amount of Starbucks iced coffees. That that has definitely increased as well. <laughs> I got actually, still no sponsorship for all your success, right? Yeah, Starbucks get at me. I've been trying for years. Yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, I'd say just as far as my day to day life, I'm just juggling more responsibilities and with YouTube and stuff, it's it's hard to find the time to make daily content in particular. So I've had to take more time off in between videos. So I think I'll actually revert to a bit more of what I was doing when we first talked and I, what I was doing more uh, several years ago, focusing on a smaller number of projects. But right now with Chessable having been acquired, we have certain benchmarks we are looking to hit and I want to try to maximize our value for the chess 24 play Magnus group. That'll be my focus in the short term um, to the detriment of my own tournament playing and uh, possibly YouTube and Twitch and stuff like that. I mean, that's, that's already happened. I haven't been posting near as much as I would like. And all the secret business ideas you're not sharing. and right, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right. Well, John, congrats on all your success. I mean, I think everyone who watches you has a sense for you being one of the nice guys in, in chess. So it's good to see. 
Thank you. Yeah. And I wanted to uh, thank everyone who supported me over the years because it's just I feel really lucky to make a living in chess and it's it's not an easy thing to do. And I've had so many people who've responded positively to the work I'm involved in, uh, YouTube, Chessable, whatnot. And I, I really re- do thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. Excellent. All right. And I think people know where to keep up with you. Um, they can contact you through your YouTube page. You're, you're on Twitter. Anywhere else, yep. John? Yeah, those are good. Those are the two best ways. I'd say Twitter, probably the best way uh, to get at me. Okay. And listeners, one final reminder, if you are thinking about picking up John's course, um, it's on sale until February 16th. So um, make your decision quickly. And is Chessable still doing the 30-day money-back thing, John? Yep. Do you know? Yeah, 30-day money-back guarantee. So no questions asked. I'm, I'm happy with my video course. Only a few people have actually taken that up. So very, very low number of people. Good. But yeah, it's a good business practice. I mean, it's it's admirable that, uh, that um, you know, any unsatisfied customer can. Yeah, especially with the price point like we we're talking about earlier. If yeah. You don't want people spending more than they are comfortable with and you can always return it if you don't like it. Okay. All right. Well, John, thanks for being generous with your time. I know you're super busy. So um, uh, oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on again, Ben. Okay. Uh, good luck. Looking forward to, to seeing what else you guys cook up. Yeah. Thank you. Likewise. Thanks, as always, to my producer, Matthew Passy, for making Perpetual Chess happen. I also want to thank all you guys and girls who helped me grow Perpetual Chess. That includes everyone who tells a friend about the show, everyone who writes a positive review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, whatever other podcast platform you may be on. All of it is appreciated and all of it keeps me going. But of course, most of all, I want to thank the people who provide financial support to the show. I would like to give extra special thanks to the following people and entities. They are Chessable Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, the Apprentice Twitch Channel, Andrew Bach, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porto, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, Dan O'Hanlon, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, I am Dimitri Schneider, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Greg Natel, Greg Shahadi, Guven Manet, Jens Green, John Jernigan, John Cromarty, John McCarthy, Kelly Palmer, Kevin O'Callaghan, Lone Pine Chess, Lorraine Dore, Lucio Casada Silva, The Law Offices of Stuart Katz, Michael Kahn, FM Michael Oplin, Mike Zelazny, Moonmaster 9000, Peter Sodi, Reuven Fisher, Seattle Chess Club, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryant of Strong Chess, and Todd Kennedy. And I would also like to thank the following people and entities. They are... Aaron Waffler, Ace Fayega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, FM Andre Terakov, Andrew Perry, Better Chess Training, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, Chad Hilton, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Flanagan, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Chris Lott, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach Day's Chess Academy, Courtney Fry, Daniel Gell, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Lucas of U.S. Chess Federation, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Cramley, CEO of Chessable.com, Dalen Shelton, Dwayne Edmonds, Ethan Smith, I am Elect Donnie Ariel, the Fox Valley Chess Club of Aurora, Illinois, Dr. Frank Tortoris, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt, Gerard Barta, Giovanni Russo, Han Schutt, 
Harish Srinivasan, James Aspinwall, James Banastia, James Moore, Jason Anfang, Jason Woolham, J. Deep Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Jerry Wells, J.J. Stranod, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jordan Goodwin, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, GM Josh Friedel, I am Kare Christensen, WGM Katerina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, I am Kostya Kovutsky, Krishna Kapala Krishnan, Larry Ryforth, Laura Belyovsky, Martin Knudsen, Matthew Passi, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, the Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Miguel Araspidi, Mike Clem, Mr. Mike Shahadi, Nate Salon, Neil Bruce, Olaf Mueller Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passi Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Swainey, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Roy Yearwood, Ryan Berg, the Say Chess YouTube channel, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Sebastian Finsterwalder, WGM, Tatia Vabrahamian, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tom Edsel, Tomas Komonich, Tony Rotella, Tyrin Price, Victor Vrinkuls, Wayne Beam, William Brock, William Juniper, William Peterson, FM Zhao Chang of Chess1000.com, Zhivko Stoyanov, and that is everyone. Thanks, everyone. Catch you guys next week. Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.